0: Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for February 7th, 2020. I'm Brian Cardile. On this week's show, we'll examine a somewhat less talked about aspect of a new California law that's gotten a lot of attention since its enactment at the turn of the year. That law is the California Consumer Privacy Act, which significantly expands the control individuals have over their personal data and places on companies who collect and sell that information a lot of new requirements. Statute key provisions have gotten a lot of media attention, so you're likely familiar with them. The CCPA mandates that covered businesses, and those are entities that buy or sell a threshold amount of user data or have a threshold annual revenue, it requires those businesses to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices to protect consumer data. A few more specific statutory provisions include the requirement that covered businesses must offer users the ability to request. Their data not be collected and sold. Users can also, under the Act, request access to their data that companies have stored. There are also processes specifically meant to guard against the data collection of minors. But with such a consequential new legal regime, and one that covers so many businesses, from traditional retail companies to social media entities, there are clearly going to be lots of devils lurking in the details of this law. For instance, what are reasonable security procedures and practices? What exactly is personal data and what sort of procedures should businesses use say to ensure that data requests are actually genuine and not coming from identity thieves so covered businesses compliance attorneys and consumer attorneys alike have been waiting for the state's regulations to be finalized to get a better sense of just how the ccpa will be applied and enforced and it's those regulations we'll be speaking about today though the law As I said, it took effect at the new year. The regulations that will attend it are still in the works. Draft regulations came out late last year, and final ones have been promised by Attorney General Javier Becerra soon. The AG has also said enforcement of the act wouldn't take place, at least with the state as the enforcer, until July. Though whether private parties can sue over the act earlier than that is a different question and one that a recent class action lawsuit filed against Salesforce in the Northern District appears to have answered in the affirmative. For now, though, with the regulations pending, we'll be joined by two partners from Munger Tolls and Olson, John Barry and Grant Davis Denny, to speak about issues that businesses and compliance attorneys should have in mind when thinking about the ambiguities the eventual regulations will hopefully answer. And John and Grant will also forecast a bit what some of those answers might be. John was previously an enforcement attorney with the Securities and Exchange Commission. He served as associate regional director of the SEC's LA office prior to joining Munger Tools. Grant's practice focuses on data privacy and data security measures and on those issues. He's advised a wide range of companies. We'll hear from John and Grant in just a moment, but first let me remind you that this podcast is being brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company, protecting your practice through 2020 and beyond. Lawyers Mutual's resolution is the same as years prior to protect members' practices with continued benefits. Lawyers Mutual's reputation of stability and consistency has thrived for over 40 years because of their members' loyalty, and they are proud that 93% of members renewed their policies in 2019. Lawyers Mutual offers more than just malpractice insurance to members, including free $100,000 cyber endorsement, a lawyer-to-lawyer hotline, and complimentary continuing legal education. Make visiting lawyersmutual.com one of your 2020 resolutions and find out more about their exclusive member benefits they offer to California lawyers. Okay, joining me now to speak about the pending California Consumer Privacy Act regulations, our two Munger, Tolls, and Olson partners in Los Angeles. First, let me welcome in Grant Davis-Denny. Grant, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: And uh, returning to the podcast, we have uh, John Barry. John, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks, Brian, for having me.
0: Okay, um, so both of you work in the space and certainly work um, with folks that uh, are paying quite a bit of attention to... The new California Consumer Privacy Act, um, and a lot of the, you know, coverage of the act, I think, has given a bit of short shrift to the fact that, though the law was passed and 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 enacted and signed by the governor and, and went, you know, ostensibly into effect at the turn of the year, there are still no real final, I guess, attendant regulations clarifying some of the finer points of it, so. We're talking about the regulations here. To start with, John, can I ask you to just sort of where we stand with with the CCP regulations at the moment? I understand that draft regulations have been uh, promulgated, but uh, we have you know no nothing final at the moment, right?
2: Sure, and it's it's posing sort of a conundrum for those who are trying to follow this and comply with the statute. I mean, as you said, that the statute itself went into effect 30 days ago on January one of this year, um, but the regs have not been finalized. So they were uh, submitted by the Attorney General's Office in October and went through a 45-day hearing period uh, where I think almost 200 parties submitted uh, about 1,700 pages of comments plus four days of public hearings, giving the Attorney General a huge amount of material to go through. Um, And so what they've got to do next will determine the timing of when these regulations um, go into effect. Now, the Attorney General's Office has, under the statute, until July 1st to adopt the regulations. But before they can do that, they've got to go through all these comments and figure out if they are going to change it, so uh, change what they've already proposed. So, And that's going to determine under the the Administrative Procedure Act um, That depends on whether or not Attorney General Becerra thinks that he needs to make or his office needs to make substantial changes to the regulations he's already proposed. So if he doesn't make substantial changes, then he can go ahead and submit his, you know, the few changes he makes to the proposed regs to the uh, the the administrative office that then takes the regulations and makes them effective and they can go effective pretty quickly. But if he makes substantial changes then he will then have to go through, his office will have to go through a whole new round of public comment that can last from 15 to 45 days depending on how substantial the changes are and whether or not they are foreseeable um, based on what he already proposed. Um, so that means that it could be as late as July because the office that takes these regulations from the Attorney General's office will then have 30 days to review them. So, if he submits them on the last due date of July 1, it could be the end of that month before they become effective. So, it could be some time, and of course, he could do it quicker than that. um, And he has had, he's made some comments about the time he had a a news briefing in December, mid-December, where he said that, he indicated that these regulations were not going to change that much from what he already proposed. He said something to the effect of, he thought what they proposed back in October gave everyone a sense of where he thinks they're headed, so everyone sort of interpreted that to mean that he's not going to be making too many changes. I think that probably means he's going to be making substantial changes, but that they are foreseeable and therefore there would only be this 15-day hearing period. So it would be quicker than if there were even more changes than that. So, I think that it does leave a lot of uncertainty about when the timing of these regulations could come in play. Um, But my best guess would be that they're going to be effective sometime around in the summer of of this year.
0: Sure. As you describe it, it certainly sounds like um, the potential for a a lot of processes to to complete, especially if the more significant changes are, are made that trigger some additional review um, but like you say perhaps that's the less likely scenario I guess in in the meanwhile before then you know with the law on the books but the regulations not sort of is everyone in a, a holding pattern of sorts? is is, um, is it a situation where there's enough uncertainty as to what these regulations are going to look like that um, you know impacted companies and entities would just be sort of reluctant to make too much of a um, a move to, to change the way they do things, considering that they don't 100% know exactly the, the regulations they're going to need to, to be living by? Uh, John?
2: Well, if, yeah, if, if you ask the Attorney General's office, the answer to that is no. Um, he, in that same news briefing I mentioned, indicated that um, he can start, when he starts enforcing the statute itself, he can look to violations that began when that statute became effective. Now, the statute became effective. January 1, 2020. So from his perspective, even though the regulations aren't in place, he can start enforcing uh, the statute if people start violating it as of of now. Um, The statute does say, and we talked a lot about when do his regulations become effective, but the other timing issue is what the statute says about when he can start enforcing it So the the statute says that the Attorney General's Office cannot start enforcing the statute until the earlier of July 1, 2020, or six months after the regulations get published. Well, we're now in January of 2020, so six months after from now is past July 1, so the earlier date of that is July 1. So that's the date that uh, Attorney General Becerra can start enforcing it, but as I said, he's he's told that, uh, the public that he's willing to, and starting that day, he's willing to enforce violations that occurred before that, in other words, the first half of 2020. So, uh, from the Attorney General's perspective, there is no holding pattern. Um, companies should start making sure that they comply with the CCPA statute even though the regulations aren't in place. Um, There's been some pushback, not surprisingly, on this point. There have been some ad agency uh, trade associations and the Chamber of Commerce have both written open letters to the Attorney General's Office uh, demanding that the, the enforcement of the statute get postponed because of this delay between the regulations and the effective date of the statute. Um, But uh, I think just maybe quell those concerns, Attorney General Becerra has also indicated that he doesn't plan to go after um, what he called the mom-and-pop shops, the small companies. His focus, he said, will be on two things. Companies that collect large amounts of data, so in other words, big companies, and Uh, on the opt-out rights uh, that parents have, protecting minors, the parents have to opt-out, it's actually an opt-in right, it's a better way to describe it, an opt-in right that parents have for the collection of data of their children and the opt-in rights that teenagers have for their own own data. So I think he's going to be focused on large companies, according to him, and also on those opt-in rights and making sure companies are complying with that. And he's also said that he's not going to be going after companies that are making good faith effort and uh, complying with the statute while these regulations are still not in place. So none of that surprises me as a former regulator. He's got limited resources. He's not going to want to bring the first enforcement action on the CCPA pushing the envelope. He's going to want, in my view, he's going to bring an action involving violations in the first half of this year, when regulations aren't even in place, it's going to be, I suspect, an action that isn't pushing the envelope and isn't a clear-cut violation by a company of, of one of the uh, the statute provisions. But as I said, there is going to be this interesting timing issue that people are complaining about—that there's going to be a statute, there's a statute in effect now, but the regulations that are needed to clarify many provisions of the statute are not in effect.
0: That was going to be my, my next question, and Grant, I could ask you, I guess, just how much clarification is, in fact, needed here? So if, you know, as, as John said, there is a law that's taken effect, and, and theoretically, the Attorney General could, once enforcement powers to him are, are active, could be penalizing folks for actions they're taking now before there are any finalized regulations clarifying the law, I guess, you know, how much does it impact how, how, different um, would covered um, entities, impacted entities, sort of think about this law, Grant, do you think between now and then when there are final regulations? I guess, overall, just sort of how much filling in of the blanks or how much um, sort of um, adding uh, clarity to, to the law is needed um, and, and will come, do you think, with these regulations?
1: I think it's pretty significant, and that's true for a, a couple of reasons. One is It has to do with the history of the CCPA statute. It's important to remember that the statute really was passed with very little in the way of uh, legislative uh, hearings or vetting, uh, because it was a last-minute deal brokered between um, the business community and the privacy advocates who were going to put the CCPA initiative on the ballot, and uh, to avoid that law being passed by an initiative, there was sort of a last minute uh, move to pass it through the legislature. But that meant that it didn't have the typical vetting that statutes w- would normally have. And so you saw in, in the initial version of the CCPA that was passed, just, you know, outright uh, grammatical errors, um, you know, provisions that uh, just simply did not make any sense at all, Um, not as a policy matter, but just as a a matter of uh, trying to understand and interpret what the sentence was intended to do. And some of that has been fixed along the way um, through amendments, but there's still a lot of uncertainty out there about some key provisions of the law. And so folks hoped that as time went along and as these regulations eventually uh, were would would be revealed by the attorney general after a number of public hearings that those regulations would provide more clarity and from the business community's perspective that has to comply with the law, perhaps even uh, narrow some some provisions of the law. And I think what everyone would probably pretty much universally agree is that the the draft regulations don't do that. Um, in fact, they they add a number of new obligations on the business community and and actually fail to provide clarity on, on some of the, the key issues where there is uncertainty.
0: I'm going to drill down on just a, a, a handful of, of, of those areas. So the first one so I am hoping to ask you about, Grant, is um, one relating to the, the requests that, that consumers can make of companies to... Um, you know, have their data that the companies have deleted or um, consumers can ask for those companies to, to provide them with the, the data, um, the consumer data those companies have. So, uh, you know, a natural concern might be that some of those requests from, you know, purported consumers could be fraudulent and that if a company, um, you know, accedes to a fraudulent um, request and gives all this information to, you know, let's say just someone that's trying to perpetrate identity theft, you'd have a a problem there. Do we have some clarity from the draft regulations as to how businesses are supposed to sort of verify that the requests from consumers are legitimate?
1: To some extent, yes, but the regulations have created in another way more uncertainty on that point. And, you know, just to make the the problem a little bit more concrete, you mentioned the example of uh, someone who's committing identity theft, uh, presumably for financial reasons, but we can also imagine other circumstances that could be even more serious, like, you know, an abusive ex-husband who poses as his ex-wife and submits a request for data uh, uh, pretending to be his ex-wife to a company that has geolocation information on that person and obviously if the you know the company disclosed that information to the ex-husband it could have significant consequences so uh, companies are worried have been worried that a law that is designed to enhance privacy could actually force them to disclose private information to bad actors the draft regulations do address this topic in a fair amount of detail and and there's a mix of good news and bad news for uh, regulated businesses. I think the good news is that the regulations do provide some guidance on what steps businesses must take to verify that consumer requests are coming from the consumers who they purport to be. So for example, if a user, if a consumer has a password protected account with the company, the regulations say that the company can confirm the user's identity by having them log into that account and re-authenticate themselves. It gets trickier uh, when a user does not have a password-protected account with the company, and they want specific pieces of data about themselves, or at least about the person they are impersonating. In that case, the regulations say that Uh, the consumer will have to provide at least three data points that the company can match up to the data that they have about the consumer. And the consumer will provide a signed declaration under penalty of perjury that they are who they claim to be. That's helpful, I think. The bad news for companies is that the draft regulations would add yet another set of duties for businesses. And that is, uh, to implement reasonable security measures designed to detect this type of fraud and unauthorized access to uh, data or to uh, deletion of data. And if they fail to do so, they presumably could be subject to regulatory fines. And the problem is, you know, as, as any lawyer will tell you, what is reasonable is, is very subjective, and oftentimes what seems reasonable before an incident occurs seems less so with the benefit of hindsight. So for businesses, what the regulations give in the way of some more clarity on the types of verification measures that may be required, they also, to some extent, take it away by adding this new duty to have reasonable security verification measures.
0: Yeah, and it strikes me that, you know, already the reasonable being a a pretty flexible, where it is kind of more so in a context that's fairly novel, at least to some extent like this, where we have a a new law about consumer privacy, what exactly is reasonable when it comes to um, vetting requests under the CCPA is sort of a thing that folks would, I think, like, you know, gradually come to learn what's reasonable and what's not. Maybe it'd be hard to know 100% ahead of time, I guess, what that standard might be like.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good point I mean, because the CCPA, I think it's important to remember, really is a first of its kind law here in the United States. So we don't have a lot of experience dealing with this, uh, these types of requests and how to appropriately verify them. And so if you're not giving businesses uh, a lot of uh, guidance, a lot of criteria on what you're going to consider to be reasonable um it, it puts them in an awfully tough position as and we begin experimenting with this this new approach to data privacy.
0: Okay, yeah. Moving on to a, a a separate point of um that might need some clarity, just in terms of how businesses are to let consumers know exactly um the the point at which um data of theirs start to be collected in a way that triggers the protections of, of the statute. So, you know, I suppose if you're interacting on, online with the business, you can imagine that might come in the form of just sort of a, a pop-up on a website. But consumers certainly interact with, you know, businesses in, in a variety of different ways, you know, including in brick and mortar um, and, stores and certainly other contexts. So is there clarity in the, in the draft regs as to how the notice is supposed to come from businesses to, to consumers in those variety of contexts, um, Grant?
1: Yeah, there is. There is. And again, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And I think here it, it depends a little bit on, on what type of business you are. And, and what I mean by that is, let, let's take a couple of examples. Say you're a business that operates both an online e-commerce website and you have brick-and-mortar retail outlets and you collect information from consumers through both your online website and your offline uh, brick-and-mortar store. The regulations are actually, I think, somewhat helpful here in saying that if you, um, you know, online you need to obviously have your, your privacy policy, but offline um, you need to, uh, in the stores, post prominent signage. And that signage, the regulations say, doesn't have to be the multi-page privacy notice that you have up on your website. So you're not going to see the, the walls of, of retail stores lined with pages of, of privacy notices. But what I think you will see more of uh, and what the Attorney General's draft regulations allow for is to post prominent signage that directs consumers to the website address where your full privacy notice is at. So I, I think that's that's somewhat helpful. But let's take another type of business and, and consider here a company that operates in the ad tech space. And For those who haven't spent much time in ad tech, I'm talking about the businesses that help essentially display the, the advertisements that appear on, on web pages or in uh, mobile applications. And there's a series of businesses, a series of different types of businesses that help enable that whole ecosystem. And um, they they deal with billions of advertisements every single day. Now, the regulations would require that a company like this, that sits in the middle of, of this chain of companies that deliver advertisements that those companies that don't have a direct relationship with consumer but which collect data about consumers have to do one of two things if they're going to sell that data. Their first option is they could contact every consumer and offer them an option to opt out of such data sales. That's not really an option for these companies because, first of all, they may not even know how to contact these consumers. The information they may have about the consumers may not be their email addresses, their phone numbers, their um, you know, physical addresses. So that's one problem. But the other thing is we're, we're talking about millions or hundreds of millions of consumers whose data they're, they're receiving. So the regulations also give them a second option, but this option really isn't much better, and that is to go to the website that originally collected the information or the application that originally collected the information and obtain signed attestations from each one of them describing how notice was given and providing an example of the notice. But again, that option isn't really feasible either because these companies are dealing with thousands Tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of different website publishers. So if this aspect of the dra- draft regulations isn't revised, it could become a real bureaucratic nightmare for those in the ad tech world. And I'll just add, you know, because our internet is currently largely powered by advertisements, the free internet is, is powered by, by advertisements, that, that should be be an issue of, of some concern I think to, to all of us
0: okay um, I, another element of, of consumer and, and company re- relations the, the the customer loyalty program that folks are familiar with that perhaps keeps track of um, you know purchases you've made and, and times you've been to particular stores or um, you know a variety of your consumption history um, there's some thought that those potentially could be in jeopardy based on, on the new law? Uh, Grant, do you have any uh, information as to, as to that or whether the, the regulations put any clarity on, on that, that question?
1: It's a good question, and, and here's why the issue comes up. The CCPA statute says essentially if you're a business and a consumer wants to exercise one of their CCPA rights, you cannot discriminate against them because, by requiring that they pay a higher price or by giving them a lesser quality good or service. That at first sounds relatively reasonable. But think about your standard customer loyalty program. Take your frequent flyer program, for example. Say you tell your favorite airline to delete all your data, and they say, okay, we're, we're happy to do that, but just know that if you do, You're not gonna have a frequent flyer account with us anymore. You're going to obviously lose your miles. And so the next time you fly, um, don't expect to be able to upgrade to premium economy using those miles. Um, Or if you wanna upgrade, you're gonna have to pay more to do so than you would have had to pay if you still had your frequent flyer account. Has the business just discriminated against you for exercising your CCPA right to delete your data? regulator might say so they might say you're receiving lesser service or having to pay extra to get that premium economy seat because your data was deleted perhaps in an attempt to address this the ccpa's drafters included an exception they said if the different service or price you're giving is reasonably related to the value that is provided to the business by the consumer's data then that's okay what exactly does that mean? How do you value uh, the the consumer's data uh, in terms of what it means for the business? And unfortunately, the regulations don't exactly answer that question. Instead, what they do is they require a business that is going to rely on this exception to document a reasonable and good faith method, and then they uh, list off a number of different ways that uh, you maybe could begin to calculate the value of that data, but the guidance, frankly, is is quite vague. It refers to things like taking into account revenues and expenses and profits that I don't think most businesses would find terribly helpful uh, in in terms of providing guidance on how to value that data. And it raises another issue, which is if if that documentation wherever to be made public, it could potentially reveal uh, quite sensitive uh, business planning information. So the regulations really don't move the ball forward here very much, um, other than that they would now require companies to document how they're choosing to evaluate the, the value of the consumer's data to the business.
0: Then maybe just sort of a, a, a catch-all here. Question: Are there other issues from the draft regulations that uh, listeners should should have at the the front of their mind? And in, in terms of perhaps the sort of record keeping requirements, or the ways in which companies must, you know, they record requests for data deletion, or ways in which data must then, in fact, be deleted, and then um, you know, any regulations as to, I guess, timing or method of, of how that all would work.
1: Yeah, there's there's several issues, and I, I wouldn't treat this as an exhaustive list of, of the issues, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few of the more significant ones I think people have had concerns about with the draft regulations. One is a big issue that has created a lot of uncertainty for companies about the CCPA is how it defines the term sales. And the statute basically says that a sale means any exchange of data for any valuable consideration, be it monetary or otherwise. And so interpreted very broadly, uh, that could potentially treat a lot of business-to-business transfers of data, even if, even if there isn't money being exchanged as a sale. And that's important because the CCPA gives adult consumers the right to opt out of sales, and it requires opt-in consent for sales involving the data of those under 16 years of age. And the draft regulations everyone hoped would provide more clarity, help, help direct um, the focus back to uh, true information sales, and they don't address this concept uh, directly at all. I think a second issue is that the Um, regulations add record-keeping requirements for businesses that are not found in the CCPA statute. Uh, So businesses, for example, would have to hold on to records of data access and deletion requests for two years, which is somewhat ironic given that one of the objectives of the CCPA is to allow consumers to get a business to delete their data the businesses actually will be forced by the draft regulations that they go into effect to keep data about the individuals for at least a two-year period of time for businesses that have personal information on 4 million or more California residents they're also going to have to collect under the draft regulations uh, detailed metrics about the number of consumer requests they received how they were handled and the like and then they'll have to post those metrics on their online privacy policy. I think one other issue with the draft regulations that I would mention is that they would require businesses to delete information even off of backup systems, whenever those backup systems are accessed or used. And the trick there is that backup systems often are used on daily, hourly, Even more frequent basis to make incremental backups of files so that they're available in case a business's systems go down or there's a natural disaster. And backup systems really aren't designed to have files deleted off of them. In fact, they're designed to do the exact opposite. So this regulation, this aspect of the regulations, could really pose some significant operational challenges for IT departments if the draft regulations are not fixed.
2: And you know, and I think you know we're talking about all these interesting aspects of the regulations, about the timing of these regulations. I think something that gets sort of short notice with the C, uh, or CCPA and people, I think, should pay a little bit more attention to and this does have to do with the timing as well, is that the CCPA, the statute, i moving to the statute, not the regs, uh, gives consumers the, the statutory right to bring a private action to seek damages if a company is subjected to a cyber attack on its data. And it's important for a couple reasons. One is that these are statutory damage amounts of, a range of $100 to $750 per consumer whose data is a, a hacked, and so that could be a big dollar amount. Um, and because of the way the statute's worded, it's likely plaintiffs bringing these suits will argue that they don't have to prove harm, mm-hmm. which is a big deal if they're able to succeed in that argument. Um, and that is likely to bring, or we will see because of this, a lot more uh, lawsuits following cyber attacks than we ever saw before. Um, and the other key part of this is the timing piece. This statute went in effect on January 1 of this year. Uh, so putting aside the regulations and when the enforcement can, uh, can happen by the Attorney General's Office Starting today, starting January 1, as of right now, uh, if there's a, a cyber breach of a company, um, they could be facing a very hefty lawsuit, private lawsuit by consumers that probably would not have been brought until this act was uh, put into place, and that's going to start happening soon. Um, and so we don't have to wait for how these regulation issues get resolved or when the regulations get passed that part is active right now. And I think that's an important thing to to keep in mind as people think about the
0: CCPA. Sure. Sort of to to wrap up, John, I was also hoping to ask you about, you know, all these things that we've been discussing, the finalization of of the particular rules and and regulations that are going to apply to this law uh, is all well and good, except for the fact that um, potentially there's another version or an augmented version of this law that could be coming down the pike, the... John, you mentioned that this law sort of came into effect because there had been a ballot initiative uh, previously um, filed, and now there is another one by the same group that's sort of proposing additional, more significant protections that I believe will be on the ballot in in November, correct? So with that in mind, I mean, with all the work being done to figure out what this law means, what does it mean to have uh, another initiative that could be just a whole sort of different, additional law coming into play?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, the, you're, you're talking about the California Privacy Rights Act, what people call it the CPRA, um, which was, it's a ballot initiative proposed by the same group, uh, Alastair uh, McTaggart and his wife, who proposed the initiative that ended up spawning the legislation that ended up being the CCPA. Um, people often refer to this new ballot initiative as CCPA 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably better to think of it not as, as a replacement or, or uh, a new version of the CCPA, the, the act that's now in effect, but more as a, a proposal to add more layers of protection. Um, probably, and I think their, their goal was to try to push uh, the California privacy laws and the regime of these laws closer to the European law under the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. Um, And, you know, what's interesting about it, the McTaggarts have, I think, pointed out that the CCPA started out as their ballot initiative, but as you heard Grant talk about it, it then evolved into, through compromise, uh, a legislative act with the passage of the statute, the CCPA, which means that if California wants to amend the CCPA, the act that's in place now, the legislature can do that without going back to uh, the vote, California voters. And the McTaggart's have pointed this out. They like the fact that this new ballot initiative is a ballot initiative, and they want to keep it that way because one thing they want to do is to make sure that this these new layers of protection uh, under the CPRA ballot initiative uh, can only be amended by the voters. And I think it's their goal this time not to compromise and to keep it as a ballot initiative, which I think is is an important thing to keep in mind if they're able to succeed on that front. And there's some legislatures and senators who are already public saying that they don't plan to negotiate this time around like they did before because they think the statute, I mean this ballot initiative is probably good enough. Um, But keeping that in mind, it really is as I said, not a new version of the current CCPA, but adding layers. So it doesn't mean that people are, as you know, we were asking whether or not people are in a holding pat- pattern for the regulations. I don't think this new ballot initiative need, means that companies need to be in a holding pattern because something may uh, make the current regime obsolete. Because all it's doing is adding new protections. For example, in the biggest, probably the biggest category of that is that this ballot initiative, the CPRA, is addressing or attempting to address uh, and adding more protections on what it calls sensitive personal information, which is a category of information that really isn't covered by the CCPA, um, but is a category that is covered by the GDPR. And so this is an example of how I think this ballot initiative is trying to push the privacy regime in California closer to the GDPR. And the sensitive personal information in the ballot initiative is defined fairly broadly. I mean, it's got some obvious components like social security number, birth date, race, sex, but it also includes things like context of emails and texts and geolocation. Um, and so that could be a big deal because what it does or proposed to do, it would give consumers the right to limit the use of this kind of sensitive personal information with more opt-out rights. You can opt out of uh, allowing companies to use sensitive personal information for advertising, for example. And this ballot initiative would also give consumers the right to ha- make sure that they had they must affirmatively consent to allow companies to use or to sell the sensitive personal information to other companies. Um, and those companies are going to have to give notice under this ballot initiative to uh, consumers uh, that they are actually collecting sensitive personal information and what kind of categories they are collecting. Another interesting obligation under this ballot initiative is that it would say that companies cannot track people within about three-quarters of a mile where they are located to target them with ads. Uh, So it, it does a lot more than the CCPA currently does, but it's not really trying to replace it. When I put it, another example is that it tends—it it seems to be trying to address the issues that happened with Cambridge Analytica by prohibiting companies from using sensitive personal information for political purposes. And again, that's in addition to the CCPA regime and not a replacement of it. Another example of that is. Um, dealing with algorithms and those predictive coding uh, algorithms that companies may use to uh, profile people for loans or for employment. The new ballot initiative will require companies to disclose if they use those kind of algorithms and the logic behind those algorithms. And another thing it does that is additive and not a replacement is it would try to, it proposes to establish an agency to enforce these provisions, and they call it the California Privacy Protection Agency. So, there's a lot more there, um, but because these are additions to the regime and not trying to replace the regime for the most part, um, I think it does mean that people should still make sure that they try to comply with the CCPA for all those timing reasons we've already talked about, and still be focused on these these regulations um, as they get finalized towards the summer.
0: Okay. will certainly a, a very much evolving and emerging area of law-keeping attorneys like you guys uh, dealing with privacy issues. Very busy, so I'll let you uh, get back to, to your work. But uh, Grant Davis-Denny and John Barry from Munger, Tolls & Olson here in Los Angeles, thanks both of you very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank,
2: Thank you, having. Brian.
0: links to our sponsor who brings you this podcast, Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company. Remember, Lawyers Mutual is exclusively dedicated to insuring and educating California lawyers, protecting and advancing their practices, clients, and their futures. Learn more about the company by visiting www.lawyersmutual.com, calling 818-565-5512, or emailing lmic at lawyersmutual.com. That's lmic at lawyersmutual.com. Okay, that's our show for February 7th, 2020, and it's somewhat bittersweet for me to announce the last Daily Journal podcast that I will be bringing you, at least for the foreseeable future, and moving over to a different practicing position within the newspaper. But the podcast is being left in the very capable hands of Howard Miller, who well, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Howard is presently a case manager at JAMS. For that, he had a long and illustrious career in litigation, also taught law at USC and headed the California State Bar. Howard will continue bringing you timely conversations with attorneys and jurists around California. For myself, I would like to express genuine gratitude for those of you who have tuned into this podcast regularly or irregularly, as the case may be. We know from the tracking statistics there are at least a few of you. It's been a real privilege to keep you up to date on the many fascinating legal issues that go on in California's courts and the Ninth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court's. Perhaps I will speak to you again somewhere a bit further down the narrow casting trail. But until then, I'm Brian Cardell. Be well and thanks again.